the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. I like that music so much. I may want to just have that going. Christmas music for, forever, yeah, 24-7. Yeah. Well, maybe just that top of the hour theme. Mr. Bill, it's good to see you. You are to my west. David is to my north. Terry is hyperboreal to David and me. I was thinking on a couple of things over the past few days. First, something Pete Peterson and I were discussing Friday regarding culture wars in this country. Pete was making a point we've long been making here, that there is this odd charge from the left that Republicans or conservatives like to fight, want to fight, like to start and want to start culture wars, where the truth is exactly the opposite. The second thing I was thinking about was how indiscriminately the word extreme gets thrown around about our party and our movement or too many in it. And the two concerns are colligated, if not fused. It's an additional shame and political projection that the Democratic Party has snatched the mantle of the word moderacy to allege their opponents are immoderate or extreme. Maybe we let them do that. But as to culture wars and extremism, a reaction and response is not an initiation and commencement. After all, what party fomented Two national anthems. Is that is that not extreme or going to existential, well, <laughs> existence? What party fomented taking a knee for the Star-Spangled Banner in verse as much as in imagery? Was that not extreme? What party has practically turned the notion of proud to be an American into America is systemically racist? Is that not extreme? What party and what movement, answer, the 1619 curriculum and movement, encouraged people to take their American flags down. You know this one, right? The creator of the 1619 movement, Nicole Hannah-Jones, she told her dad, a Vietnam veteran, to take their American flag down, for as she told him, she learned in school when she was in the fifth grade, key words, those, learned in school, fifth grade, that the flag did not represent them. You will recall this is precisely what both Richard Nixon in 1968 and Ronald Reagan in 1980 ran against, the liberal left investment in declaiming about America and turning America itself upside down, if not into a down market commodity. Nixon, looking at the crime and riots in 1968, put it this way in his convention speech, quote, as we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? Did American boys die in Normandy and Korea and in Valley Forge for this? He went on, listen to the answer to those questions. It is another voice. It is the quiet voice in the tumult and the shouting. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans. The forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators, they are not racists nor sick. They are not guilty of the crime that plagues the land, close quote. As many of you know, I've always landed on that line that Americans are not sick. 
for that was the line of the left in the 1960s, the late 1960s, that we were a sick country. That is in part why I hated what we did to ourselves in COVID, particularly with the masks, which were walking billboards of illness and broadcasts to one another that we were all infirm and sick when we all were not. There was an investment in the 1960s as much as in the 2020s from the left to instantiate and insist, oh yes, we were all sick because we were all sick. And it's interesting, isn't it, that with all the studies coming out on our mental health as a result of COVID policies, that those policies, shutting down work and school and church and synagogue and 12-step meetings and holidays and visits to the elderly or the truly sick or friends and masking and sheltering, and pushing resentments against one another, all that did actually create a health crisis, a mental health crisis. All that did actually fuel and exacerbate the drug and alcohol abuse crisis. All that did actually divide us even more amongst ourselves. So to the language used against a president who stood for relatively normal Republican Party policies. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't conservative. He was a fascist. When half the country repeats and re-loops the notion that their duly elected president, A, wasn't duly elected because of a foreign agent, and B, is of the ideology summoned from the worst of world history, fascism, that does something to a people. Meanwhile, Earth is in the balance because of our behavior, the left tells us. Entire ecosystems are being eliminated because of us, the left tells us. We are systematically racist and black Americans will no longer longer be able to go to college or vote, the left tells us. It is a form of bigotry to keep what used to be considered pornography out of the hands of children in public schools, the left tells us. It is a form of cruelty and an invasion of bodily autonomy to try and help rather than enable homeless drug addicts, the left tells us. It is imperative children make life-altering decisions about their sexuality and younger and younger and at younger and younger ages, the left tells us. That's all one set of cultural fights. None we catalyzed, all that they catalyzed. Then we have this. Nothing bothers the left so much as the idea we might just be okay— if we were allowed to live with a level of normalcy or calm, rather than the frenetic state of frenzy they want us in. And being okay or better is what bothers them about our love of country, our patriotism, our national anthem, our notion that we cannot just be good but great. Alert And lyrical salutes to all this, like, say, I don't know, Lee Greenwood's song, Proud to be an American, for example, the song that became Ronald Reagan's theme in 1984, nothing bothered and bothers the left so much as things like that, which is why Barack Obama choked on saying he believed in America, American exceptionalism. To him, when asked about it in 2009, he said, quote, I believe in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism, close quote. That's what you might call a swing and a miss. You can't have one great thing if all other things are equally great, after all. Great or exceptional is a superlative to be measured against something less so. Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong and all the men are good-looking and all the children are above average, is fictional. What Obama was representing was relativism, that such notions of good and bad are not dependent on some identifiable authority 
or representation, but on where you are and, I suppose, who you are. Neither Thomas Jefferson nor Abraham Lincoln said, we think we are the world's last best hope of Earth, or that we, like the French, are the last best hope of Earth, or we believe we are the last best hope of Earth, just as the French think they are. That's not how Lincoln and Jefferson spoke. And if Aristotle is right, that the character of a people is shaped by the character of its leadership, beware, for we have a leadership and a leader that is feeble. And my worry is that it is enfeebling the rest of us, leading to a spreading and exacerbating crisis in confidence. Alexander Hamilton in the 70th Federalist wrote, quote, energy in the executive is a leading character in the definition of good government. He went on, quote, a feeble executive implies a feeble execution of the government. A feeble execution is but another phrase for a bad execution. And a government ill executed, whatever it may be in theory, must be in practice a bad government, close quote. In 1980, Ronald Reagan, in his acceptance speech, put it that, quote, my view of government places trust not in one person or one party, but in those values that transcend persons and parties. The trust is where it belongs in the people. The responsibility to live up to that trust is where it belongs in their elected leaders. That kind of relationship between the people and their elected leaders is a special kind of compact, close quote. So what have you when a leader is weak, enfeebled, and perhaps even infirm in all contexts of those words? Fairly easy to see the rest of us that way, too, especially if he, in the full meaning of the word, represents us. Let it not affect the people or the country, please. The failure right now is in our elected leaders who are infecting us, Aristotle-like, and the party that wanted to turn away from American greatness to the malaise they always sought for us, the nostalgia de la boue, or thirst, savoring, longing for the mud. You can have that. We have that now. Let's hope the illness is reversible. I still would like to think we are not a sick country. But sometimes these things are self-fulfilling. It's long past time to reverse it. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. What do we got here? Ooh, have I stumped you? Yeah. George Harrison's only Christmas song. Ah. It's called Ding Dong, Ding Dong, and because he was uh, of the Eastern persuasion when it came (laughs) to religion, I can imagine why it's... uh, not very Christmassy by nature. It's more of a New Year's song. Oh, okay. It's pretty good. Is it? Yeah. I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah. No need. I'll have to send you the, uh, the 45 to no, no, sample at home. No reason. No need. I say that to Dagny, the Wonder Dog, sometimes. No reason for the behavior she engages in. Jake is in Gilbert. Hello, Jake. Hi, Seth. How are you? Thanks for taking the call. You bet. I'm doing well. Thanks. So I've got a question on political philosophy for you, but I need to set it up a little bit. So I love history, particularly history around World War II. And very often when I see documentaries or read books, they describe the Axis powers and their leaders as right wing. And to me, that seems to be a great way to get get a little dig in. And remind people, oh, what you really need to be afraid of is the right. They're the danger. And I've always interpreted it that way. It's always bugged me. You can let me know if I'm off on that. But I thought of a hypothetical 
that may explain how they get away with it. Uh, let's say that with the current global conflicts, that God forbid it descends into World War III, and God willing, let's say that the good guys win again and the Jew-hating faction and their <laughs> allies lose. Could historians 50 years after this all ends make the same claims that because it started from mm. Jew-hating religious fundamentalists that may oppose gay marriage, for example, that the bad guys in this instance are right-wing, even though it's the American left-wing that's allying with these Jew-haters. And, and it's the left-wing that thinks Osama bin Laden had a point. <laughs> Likewise, during World War II, it was the left-wing eugenicists that agreed with Hitler on getting rid of the, quote, under, undesirables. Um, and and I've also heard Nazis are called right-wing because they put an emphasis on nationalism. I can also see how Islamist religious fundamentalists can be labeled right-wing. But on the things that actually matter, doesn't their relationship with the American right seem pretty doggone tenuous? Yeah. Good. And on, yeah, keep going. Go ahead. Well, and on the things that actually matter, isn't their allyship with the left that's the dangerous existential threat? <laughs> Am I being too sensitive on No, no, uh, no, no, no. This is interesting, and it, and it crosses a lot of interesting— uh, for lack of a better word, axes. Um, say what you give me the phrase. You did one phrase too fast for me, or at least I missed it as you were doing it. Something about Jew hating fundamentalists. What were you saying about fifty years well, from now, just, history's looking history looking back at Jew hating fundamental? What was that point? I just missed that a little bit. Well, I, I, I think a lot of the Jew hatred of today is coming from religious fundamentalists. Oh, religious fundamentalists. Which okay which they might say, oh, because it's associated with religion, that it's right-wing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. marriage, I, yeah. so they're mm-hmm. right-wing. Okay, I'm with you now. Well, the first thing that is so ironic to me is, I, I don't know how old you are, it doesn't matter, um, but in the few years shortly after 9-11, 2001, there was a phrase you would see often from columnists, editorials, op-ed writers, commentators um, that would uh, criticize or condemn members of the religious, the values movement in the Republican Party, for lack of a better term, the Christian right. They would criticize them as members of the Taliban wing of the Republican Party. I don't know if you remember hearing that phrase. This was kind of in vogue. I don't. It was in vogue in 02, 03, 04, the early aughts. It was in vogue to call uh, those who, you know, sided with the Family Research Council and, uh, you know, you're, you're the kind of person that the current Speaker of the House is. They would say they were from the Taliban wing of the Republican Party or the Taliban wing of the conservative movement, meaning that they were such religious fundamentalists, they were, you know, wacko. But in that phraseology, Jake, kind of interesting, there was an implied, if not explicit, condemnation of the Taliban. It was a negative view of the Taliban, right? To say they they were of the Taliban wing of the Republican Party. It was not a compliment. (laughs) It It was a critique, a pejorative, a criticism. What's so damn interesting to me about all this is within the past month, 
we have seen the American left cozying up to the adherences of the ideologies of the Taliban, if not bin Laden explicitly, but a movement in Hamas, which is uh, in kinship with the Taliban. It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing for me to see this shift. I know it, it, it's, it's, it's not central to your point, but it's not tangential to it either. And, right. and, and this is what's so fascinating to me about it, because it does – there is one and only one explanation I can see that, 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 that can answer how this could possibly be, that within 18 or 20 years of the American left – Understanding that the Taliban was an evil thing, so much so that it wanted to compare Republicans to the Taliban, now embracing movements that adhere to Talibanic ideology and Talibanic alliances like bin Laden, there's only one thing that, ex- that can explain that shift. And it's not because the American left believes in what the Taliban or Hamas or bin Laden believe in when it comes to such things as, oh, I don't know, LGBTQ or gay rights or abortion, the kinds of things that conservatives tend not to like. It's not because they support that. It has to be only one possible explanation. And that one possible ineluctable explanation that the only thing I can conclude is Jew hatred. Jew hatred. That's That's the only thing I can understand that explains it. Because on almost no other thing, oh, 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 an American hatred. Jew hatred and America hatred. Usually if you right. hate one, you hate the other. But the, it, that, and, and that's what explains it to me, Jake. I think that's right. And let's say we figure this all out, like I said, 50 years from now. They should, there should be some shame for anyone that cozied up to that. But I can see historians that do feel the shame, maybe left-wing historians, that's such a big issue. Let me do this. Such a big issue. Let me do this. Let me do our culture and economy update. And if you can hold, I would love, or if you want to call back in about 15 minutes or at the top of the next hour, whatever's easier for you, because I think I have some time at 4.05. If you can either hold for about 15 minutes or call back at 4.05, either one, your choice, I would love to go deeper. This, this is a huge issue. If you don't mind, you've opened up something really big, Jake. I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Kenny and Dolly, you can't do better than that. Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, fantastic. Nice. Not islands in the stream anymore. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. John Dombrowski, he brings us our culture and economy update. He's the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, grandcanyonplanning.com, his website. Can you beat Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers, John? That's about as good as it gets, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. You ever, have say. you ever seen Kenny in concert? Uh, no, I have not. But I and I don't even think I've been to one of the restaurants that he had way 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 back back when. Kenny Rogers <laughs> are they still Roasters? around? Ken, yeah, it's the wood that makes it good. I don't think they're still around, are they? No, but it was a big part of a Seinfeld episode. Seinfeld, yeah. With they, the... <laughs> it's the wood that makes it good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, amazing. All right. Well, speaking of other food items, Apple. Yes. Apple. 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 Apple's well, market cap. Holy that, co- holy moly. I, I know. Can you can you believe it? Yeah. Talk to yeah, me. Yeah, Apple uh, here. milestone hit that 3 trillion dollar mark. Yeah. 
uh, it's amazing when you think about this company and, and, and how far they've come in, in you know, a short period of time. Yeah. Uh, of course. I remember uh, when so, people were saying, forget it. They're done. They're yeah. over. Not that long right. ago. Right. Right. That's right. But, uh, boy, they've really pulled it together and they've become a real force in the industry. Uh, there was a report that came out by uh, an analyst uh, talking about the next generation of phones and, and how uh, basically thinking that over the next few years, your cell phone that you have today, which is an amazing uh, you know, piece of technology, is basically going to be obsolete because yeah. of the new technology that's coming out. And, of course, Apple you know, being in that position that they're in is positioned very well to be one of the benefactors of the new generation of phones and the uh, AI that uh, many believe is going to be incorporated into the software in these these phones. You know, in part, maybe there's another story. Maybe this is a story about genius. Um, hmm. Steve Jobs, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. but for him, probably this story wouldn't exist. Or this yeah, company. I mean, obviously he was right? an integral part yeah, of, yeah. of bringing uh, this technology and, and yeah. the idea yeah. of, of, of the uh, Apple and, you know, and, products. Yeah, the genius of Steve Jobs. And then it's probably fair to say amongst us, walking amongst us, is another genius of that ilk. Maybe even more so, Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. what he right. has done, uh, yeah. whether it's the car or whether it's spaceships, rockets. Right. Um, or, I guess now getting into AI, right? Trying to yeah, raise and I mean, what a billion bucks. Yeah, it's more of a philosophical kind of a belief. Yeah. I, I think at yeah. this point for him, yeah. uh, wanting to raise a billion dollars for his X AI project, right? Which is uh, something that he wants to truly find. Uh, you know, uh, find out about the universe, to understand the true nature of the universe is what his uh, quote was. Yeah. Uh, and thinking that the AI is something that's going to be able to get get us there and basically modeling this after, and again, his quote, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah. the movie, right? Uh, where this software is kind of modeled after that, uh, even making a little joke that uh, the answers will be a bit, uh, you know, funny, witty, rebellious, uh, so, uh, it's kind of interesting how they, uh, are going about this and whether or not this is going to actually happen or not. I don't know, but they've already raised one, uh, what? $135 million yeah. Yeah, in looking, the first round. Yeah. And you know, a billion dollars for him is not that much. So right. I've got to believe that they he will fill it in get this. He, yeah. yeah he they will get this billion dollars. Yeah. How do you go about that? I, I, I guess it's all through an SEC process. I've never had to raise a billion dollars. Let me just confess to you in case you were wondering. Well, you, you, know, life, of that question. you know, life is still, you have a lot of life ahead life of you. Yeah, yeah, we're still young. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it is an SEC process, right? It's not just going. Right. right. There's, okay. there's a process you okay. have to go all through right. to file and, yeah. and there's shares that people are okay. buying and okay. you've got to make sure that that money's going to the right place and so forth. So yeah, there's a whole, but they've got all of that paperwork in place and the offering is, 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 uh, already uh you know they've got a binding and enforceable agreement it says for the purchase of these shares so uh it's going to be an interesting uh, process to see and if people want to invest in this you know the average person's not going to be able to invest that was in this. my next it's, question it's, yeah. right these are going to have these are going to be only offered to certain certain at least uh, not people. yet i mean at some point you could see this going public theoretically, right right yeah. But if someone wants to invest in all, you know, the uh, the AI uh, companies out there right. that are uh, in the forefront of this, uh, there are many companies out there that are publicly traded that you can invest in. But you as can always, help them with I, that, I can't you? 
Yes, of yeah. course. And I encourage people, though, to make sure that they're uh, understanding the risks that are associated with any type of investment, of course. Good, good, good. Thank you, John. You bet. Uh, as always, go to our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. You can request an appointment with me right there. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of FinRent Certificate, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you. Thank you, John. You bet. It's the wood that makes the good. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, Jake and Gilbert called back. Thanks for doing that, Jake. You, uh, you, uh, Gave us in the second segment earlier this hour uh, a series of really big topics, kind of enrolled, kind of intertwined into one. You want to recap it? Take take a few seconds to recap. Recap how you how you cast the question. Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. So, I I was thinking that there are some similarities between religious. Fundamentalist with Islam, uh, with the right wing, in that we may agree on some things like abortion. I think you mentioned that, or, or, or gay marriage. Uh, I was thinking. I put a hypothetical in my head. Fifty years in the future, if one day uh, we figure this all out, left wing historians, when they're writing up the history, they're going to feel some shame that hey, it was a lot of it was the left wing Jew haters that caused the problems we're happy, that we're seeing today. I'm wondering, because of those relationships with the right that is, I don't want to say relationships, relationships, but because of the relationship that Islamists have somewhat with the right, that they'll be able to say, oh, that was a right-wing problem. Mm. Uh, it's not a left-wing problem. No. And, and I was comparing that with how they did that with World War I think that's how they do that with World War II yeah. when they cast the problems with Nazis. They say that's the right wing problem, right? But <laughs> forgetting yeah. that it's national yeah. socialism they're talking about. Yeah, the idea of how history will look back at this—it's—it's it's an interesting thing, history. And I don't know if it'll continue down the same path. Um, if I were to ask, I think this is right. If I were to ask someone to tell me three things about Henry Ford, what would they usually give as an answer 80 years after he died or whatever? What would they say? Um, the assembly yeah, line, the, assembly the invention. Line. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the assembly line uh, and, 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 and that, whole no, that whole notion of, of work. Um, the Ford, of course, the Ford automobile. And there's a third thing that will almost always come up, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And if I were to ask people to tell me three things about Charles Lindbergh, what would they say? Of course, his amazing flight, probably the kidnapping of his child. And there's a third thing, isn't there? These things still come up. These third things still come up. The anti-Semitism that has attached and affixed itself to their biographies. Uh, Lo, these almost 100 years now. And I don't know if that going forward will obtain with what we're watching today. I just don't know. Because in those days, it was um, it was not something that you were, you know, removed from polite society on. But it was something the historians cared about. And it was something, obviously, that was looked upon 
the way that um, I think someone like Whitaker Chambers looked upon in his support of communism before he left it and was ashamed of it. There's something interestingly more toxic, though, today, isn't there, about—and I think you're getting at this a little, too— there's something more toxic today about fascism or Nazism than there is communism. I don't know why. For example, um, it, it seems to be much more easy for someone to stand up and say, I'm a communist, than it would be for them to stand up and say, I'm a Nazi. Christopher Hitchens, are you familiar with the writer Christopher Hitchens? Uh, somewhat. Okay, yeah. Go to uh, do 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 yourself a favor and and, and become familiar with him. <laughs> it, it, you'll thank me for it and him. Uh, but he made this point in his biography, autobiography, Hitch Twenty Two. That's well worth reading. Hitch Twenty Two is autobiography. He made the point that for some reason it's 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 pardon the phrase it's kosher for we on the left. He's a man of the left. We on the left to talk about our fellow comrades. And without blinking an eye. But you never hear the German equivalent of fellow right-wingers and Nazis talking about their fellows that way. You never hear people just easily talking about fellow members of right-wing, to use your parlance, or Nazi or fascistic parties. It's not cool. It's not okay. It's too toxic. And yet, if you're doing a tote board... Communism has killed, by far, tens of millions more people. The body count of communism is so much the greater than fascism and Nazism, isn't it? By a factor of like 90 to 10. Why is that? Why, how is that? How has communism become so, so sanitized? And how is fascism not? So that's, that's part of this, too. Fifty years from now... Looking back, I don't know. And I'll tell you, the reason I don't know is because of the way we now train historians. We used to have um, historians and scholars who had an understanding of decency and civilization. They had an actual understanding of history. We don't make them like that anymore. We just don't. They're not like that anymore. And I give you our present-day college campus. I could give you a major elite institution, university, in every state of this country and find you at least one member of the history department, and maybe more, who side with Hamas. You would have never, never found that in any college or university campus siding with Adolf Hitler or Benito Mussolini, ever. Right. And that's why I wonder, like, in 50 years from now. Right. That's why I they wonder. They should feel some shame about yes. that. Yes, yes, uh, but I don't know if they will. I don't know if they will. Right. I don't know if they will. I don't understand why there aren't mass resignations at these universities for affiliations with them as to what they've become. If I were at an organization or an institution that was proudly or or blithely tolerating chance of genocide, I'd resign. I wouldn't want to be any part of that institution at all. I work for something called the Salem Corporation. 
if we had employees here that were marching in chants of racism or genocide of any kind, prejudice or bigotry, and the leadership either defended it or just tolerated it and said, you know, until violence breaks out, it's okay. We can't do anything. They'd, I, I, I wouldn't wait for a pink slip. I'd be giving my own. I'd resign. These people are, they're not, they have no pangs of conscience of affiliating with these institutions that tolerate this. I can't say the word. And that's why I do worry about it 50 years hence. I worry about it 50 days hence, Jake. Bless you, sir. Thank you. Portions of the show are brought to you by Why Refi. They have a secure investment, and it actually helps people. It's a secure, collateralized portfolio where you get a monthly statement with no surprises. There's no attack on principle if you ever need your money back. There are absolutely no fees, and you're in total control. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. And it's an investment that's not tied to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. And you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24, or go kick their tires in person. They're based here locally. Their offices are right on Chauncey Lane in North Phoenix, and happy to greet you. You can visit with them. And um, you won't be asked to sign a thing. You won't get a sales pitch. They just like talking about what it is that they do. I've been there any number of times. But if not, investyrefi.com. Invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Did I make you nervous saying kick their tires? Did you not know where I was going? Yeah, I wasn't sure if you were going to say kick their somethings. Their tires. Yeah. It's a phrase. Yes, and usually in the car buying business, that means somebody that doesn't know what they're doing kicks the tire of the car and, you know, they're kind of an idiot. No, it does not mean yeah, that. it just means they beat around it's the bush. It's an expression that yeah, means... tire kickers. No. No? It, well... Well, we're getting somewhere. We're warming up. No, it's an expression that means I want to go see it in person. I want to I wanna get a sense of it in person. Maybe it's adopted a new meaning amongst uh, sellers of used cars. Well, maybe. Because there is, you want to avoid no one, tire kickers. You know, no one who's been car. to a car dealership or works at a car dealership has ever seen anyone kick a tire in their lifetime. Well, it's... It, because it's an expression. Yes, because it's like it means that the person's an idiot who's buying the used car. That you Well, know, most going, people are, and they're not they're, kicking tires. They're, well, that's true, but... Um, the so there. That buy used classic cars, you know, the, the, these guys, they're called t- t- tire kickers, guys that come around. No, they're not. They're interest. called looky loos. Well, maybe that's the Arizonaism for it. No, I'm totally right about this. I'm totally right about this. Rick is in Phoenix. Hi, Rick. Hi there, Seth. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I hope you're having a great Tuesday. You betcha. You bet. Listen, I uh, was inspired by your monologue, which was excellent. And then your conversation with Jake uh, might also tie into this, but your monologue reminded me I'd been thinking for a while about the uh, pledge that the signers of the Declaration of Independence uh, made at the end of the Declaration of Independence, where they said that they pledged to one another, mutually pledged to one another, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Yes, sir. 
And it seems to me, uh, this is something I've been thinking about, that maybe a big part of the problem that we have in our current day is that we have too many leaders uh, for whom there is no cost. Yep. Yep, yep, that's right. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.